Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. We have something a little different today. Something new. It's right there in the name of the form. New comedy. Yes, we have finished the works of Aristophanes. So today we will look at what remains of Greek new comedy. Menander's Discalos. Uh, so we have a new playwright and a new form of comedy, which means we have some background to cover before we get into Discalos proper. Menandros, uh, more commonly remembered by his Latinized name of Menander, which obviously is the name I've been using, is the most famous of the Greek new comedy writers. Um, and today that's probably because he's the only example of Greek new comedy. Um, yeah, so the only example of Greek new comedy that we have is, is one of his plays. Um, we saw obviously a little bit of that transitional, maybe middle comedy in Aristophanes, but Menander was the thing in, in new comedy. Um, he was pretty part, uh, popular in antiquity. Um, he was born around 342 BCE and died around 291 BCE. So he's a whole generation later than um, the other playwrights that we've been, we've been reading. This puts him in history after the Athenian democracy of Aristophanes. Um, instead, his life spanned around the reign of someone I'm sure you've heard of, a certain young man by the name of Alexander the Great. Uh, so while all of the other playwrights we've read were from the Hellenic period, Menander is much later and lived in the Hellenistic period. I know I'm throwing out these history terms, when I haven't even started a history course as part of this podcast. Uh, the TLDR version is that Alexander brought Greek culture to all the places he conquered, and those places became sort of Greek. Um, they adopted parts of Greek culture, but it didn't completely supersede their existing culture. So they weren't Greek proper or Hellenic. They were sort of Greek or Hellenistic. Um, and that's a very broad generalization, so don't at me. Back to Menander. His family was well off. His patron was the founder of the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt, and you know that dynasty. A certain woman by the name of Cleopatra was the last pharaoh in that dynasty. Um, but obviously she's some generations down from where we are with Menander, um, you know, 300 years later. Um, Despite this patronage, though, uh, Menander mainly lived in Piraeus, which is the port city for Athens. Um, he wrote more than 100 plays, won first prize at Lanaia eight times. Um, we don't know how many times he won at Dionysia, but he did win at least once for Discalos. It was, uh, appears to have been a pretty popular play. Um, we have already seen in Aristophanes that the form of comedy was evolving. And the political changes within Athens led to even greater changes. It's harder to get away with some things when living under an authoritarian government than the democracy under which Aristophanes lived. Um, so Menander put his own hallmarks on what became known as new comedy. The subject matter has changed completely. It's not about gods and rulers anymore. The characters are common people and the plots are about ordinary life, sort of. Um, you'll note that the chorus is gone. The plays are much more realistic than what we've seen in the previous comedies that we've read. Um, we don't have any singing birds or frogs or clouds or wasps. <laughs> um, 
then and and when we get into the Roman comedies of Terence and Plautus, we'll see that the characters created by Menander will become solidified into stock characters, and that the plots are all very similar. Um, and performance also has changed. Um, there were still the dramatic festivals, obviously, but the religious rites surrounding them were were no longer so much the focus of the festival. It was more about the the theater. It was becoming theater was becoming less and less of a religious rite and more the form of popular entertainment that we might recognize today. Like we've seen in the Homeric hymns and the late plays of Aristophanes, Discalos is incomplete. Um, we have the entire plot, but there are some breaks and illegible sections within it, which might explain why I had a hard time finding a version of it online. I only found two, one of which was easier to read than the other, and I didn't use that version because it has a pretty strict copyright statement about not using it for commercial purposes, and technically um, this is a commercial purpose. So I instead used the Vincent Rosevich translation, which is found at faculty.fairfield.edu. Um, there's nothing wrong with the translation per se, but it's awkward to read. Um, just the way it's formatted um, makes it a little difficult to follow. For example, all of the character names that indicate who's speaking are abbreviated with just two letters. And the cast of characters is listed at the end instead of the beginning, so you don't even have that initial reference of what the names might be when you first look at the, look at the screen. Um, so it, it does make it hard to keep track of who everyone is. And if it weren't for the fact that they are stock characters that I'm familiar with, having studied Greek comedy, um, and Roman comedy particularly, um, I, I probably would have been completely lost um, as I was trying to read it. So if you Google um, Menander's Discalos, you'll... You'll find links to both of these translations. I recommend the Poetry and Translation link over the Fairfield one, but the Rosevich translation is is perfectly fine. There's I, I don't see anything wrong with it. It's just the formatting that's weird. Um, there also is um, a Loeb Classic Library edition, and um, Loeb does have all of their publications online, um, but that requires a subscription. Um, if you have access through your library or if you can check out a Loeb edition from your library. I I do like their books a whole lot. I recommend them in large part because they include the original text as well as the translation. So on one page you have the Greek and on the other page you have the English or the Latin and, the, you know, whatever language the original is. And um, and even if you don't speak the original language, it's, it's fun to be able to look at it. So I, you know, I've got um, the letters of Pliny the Younger in a low, low edition here. Um, and at some point I'll figure out where he, we will fit him in, but he's a Roman. So, and we are still working on Greeks here. So we haven't, haven't made it to the Romans yet. Um, one more thing about new comedy. I've mentioned the stock characters, but I haven't mentioned the set. Um, and basically every new comedy has the same set. There are three buildings, and they are typically houses, uh, but, you know, they may serve other purposes depending on the specific play. Um, so the actors can enter from stage left, stage right, or one of the three upstage doors, upstage right, upstage left, or upstage center. Um, hopefully 
you all speak enough theater to understand what that means. Um, but basically, there there are three buildings, and and they are they don't change. Like the house on the left will always be the X person's house, and the house on the right will be Y's person's house, and the house in the center will be the brothel. Um, there is not actually a brothel in this play, but it's a common feature in new comedy. Anyway, um, now on to Disclose Proper. Uh, Disclose was first performed in 316 BCE at Lanaya, where it won first prize. So it won first prize at both um, both big festivals, um, Dionysia and Lanaya, apparently. Um, as is typical of new comedy, the play is rather domestic, centered on a couple of families. Family one consists of Neman, the grouch of the title, his daughter Myrene, and his stepson Gorgias. Uh, family two consists of a young man named Sostratos and his parents, Callipides and an unnamed mother. The rest of the characters that speak are slaves. Uh, family one, the grouch's family, uh, own Daus and Symmache. And family two, Sostratos's family, own Kyrius, Pyrius, Gaetus, and um, I listed Simiki twice for some reason. I wrote down the wrong name there. Um, it, it, it's a cook character. Um, anyway, um, and the god Pan introduces the play. One of the things you'll see is that slaves are typically clever. And before you put race into this, remember that race as we know it today is a modern construct. I cannot stress this enough when we're dealing with new comedy where slaves are very common characters. Um, you can imagine all of the characters in any number of skin tone because the Mediterranean world was then, as it is now, a very diverse place. So there is no reason that Sostratos can't be black and his slaves can't be white, or that they can't be, you know, brown-skinned Middle Easterners. All colors of the rainbow here, because that is what the Mediterranean world looks like and looked like then. Um, I will talk more about slavery later, but just remember it is not a race-based thing in the ancient world. Um, so with that background, we'll take a break and I will try to explain the plot of Menander's Discolos when we get back. Right. As I mentioned before the break, I'm not working from the easiest script to read, so we'll see how this goes. If you ever look at the references in the show notes, you'll see that I frequently cite ancientliterature.com, and I will definitely be referencing their summary to make sure I didn't miss something important. Um, the play opens in Philae, which is in the northern part of Attica, um, and Attica is the region controlled by Athens. Pan enters and provides the background to the play. He explains that this is the location of a shrine to the nymphs, and it's a very famous shrine. Uh, the farm on the right is where Nemon lives, and he is quite the misanthrope. Oh, yeah, if you're familiar with Moliere's The Misanthrope, this was his source material. Anyway, Nemon is a total misanthrope. He hates everyone. Somehow he managed to find a wife. She was a widow with a young son. 
they were miserable together, and it just got worse after she gave birth to their daughter. And she finally gave up on Emma and went back to live with her son from her first marriage. Um, she didn't have far to go, though, because uh, just, she just had to go over to the house on the left. Um, anyway, the son isn't a very good farmer, but he's a good man and is just managing to so- support himself, his mother, and one servant um, that he in- inherited from his dad so yeah not so much a servant as a slave but that's who comprises his household Neman, meanwhile lives alone with his daughter and an old serving woman um and in case you've forgotten he hates everyone despite growing up in such angry in such an angry household his daughter is quite the opposite uh, and she holds the nymphs who hang out with pan in highest esteem which is why pan has decided to help her out you see there's this young man, and his dad is loaded, and Pan thinks he's the perfect match for this sweet young woman. The young man typically hangs out hangs out in the city, but he's come hunting to this very part of Attica, and oh, look, there he comes now with his BFF. Yes, all of that was just the prologue, but having explained everything you need to know about the plot, Pan finally exits. Kyrius and Sostratus enter. Uh, Kyrius is giving Sostratus a hard time about having fallen in love with a girl he just saw. Sostratus asks Kyrius to help, and Kyrius agrees and talks about how he usually helps by getting the girl for himself. Sostratus explains that he's already sent Kyrius to go and talk to the girl's father. Um, he's just now realizing that sending one of his slaves might not have been the best choice, but when you're in love, well, you just can't think straight. But he does know that Pyreus should be back by now, so that's why they've come back to the country. Pyreus runs on, shouting about how this crazy man is chasing him, throwing dirt and stones. And Sestratus tells him there's no one chasing him. Pyreus slows down but still begs everyone to leave, to get as far away from the house on the right as possible because the man who lives there is crazy. You see, as requested by Sestratos, Pyreus had knocked on the door and asked for the head of the house. An old woman answered and said he could find the master out collecting his pears. Pyreus approached the man and was friendly and polite, but the old man responded by chasing Pyreus off. Sostratus says that Pyreus must have done something to anger the man, but Pyreus is unable to think of anything. Nemon enters, grumbling to himself, and is furious to discover someone standing outside his door. Sostratus says that he has an appointment to meet someone there. Nemon responds by sarcastically saying that, of course, the appointment has been made there, because where else would he plan to meet someone other than outside of his house? And he storms inside. Sostratus acknowledges that Pyreus was right, and the man is an absolute grouch. Myrene enters. Her maid, Simiki, has dropped the bucket in the well, and now Myrene is trying to figure out how to get the water her father has just requested. She worries about what will happen to her maid if he finds out what happened. Sostratus offers to help, and Myrene gratefully accepts. He exits to go to the well. Daus enters from Gorgias' house, grumbling about how poverty simply refuses to leave the house. He watches as Sostratus re-enters and gives water to Marini, who then exits into Nemon's house. Daus thinks this looks like trouble, so he exits to get Gorgias. Daus and Gorgias enter. Gorgias says that despite his poor relationship with his stepfather, he does still care about his sister, so the old man should know about her chatting with this strange young man. Before they get the chance, Sostratos enters, once again intent on speaking to his love's father. Gorgias stops him and asks for a word. He does the typical overprotective big brother spiel, but once Sostratos pronounces his love, Gorgias agrees to help. Here's the plan. 
Nemon will only be happy with a son-in-law who has as much of a misanthrope as he is. So Stratus will take on that guise and go work in Gorgias's fields. After a brief interlude showing Nemon being grouchy towards people who've come to make a sacrifice at the nymph's shrine, Sostratos enters, having spent all day working in Gorgias's field. He is sore and sunburned and didn't see Nemon at all, but he still thinks that Gorgias is a stand-up guy, so he invites him to come to the sacrifice at the shrine. Those people from earlier? Yep, Sostratos' family. Sostratos, Gorgias, and Daos exit. Simiki enters. She's dropped the bucket in the well. Again. And to make matters worse, she borrowed Nemon's mattock and tied it to some rope to make a grappling hook, and the rope was rotten and broke, and now she's lost the mattock down the well, too. Gaitis recommends she run away, but Nemon enters before she gets the chance. He tells her to go inside for a rope to tie himself to, and he'll go down the well to get the bucket and his mattock. She exits. Gaitis offers a grappling hook, but Nemon is, of course, completely interested, uninterested in help from another family. He storms back into his house. So Stratos, Gorgias, and Daos enter, talking about the celebration following the sacrifice. Gorgias tells Daos to go and keep his mother company. So Stratos and Gorgias exit to the shrine, and Daos exits into Gorgias' house. Simiki enters, wailing about how Naaman has fallen into the well. She tried to tell him the rope was rotten, but, well, you know. Her cries lead everyone from the shrine to enter, and they form a plan to help rescue Naaman and exit. Sostratus enters and tells of how Gorgias managed to pull Nemon out of the well. Sostratus had tried to help, but he wasn't strong enough, and he couldn't bear to be inside the house anymore because he almost kissed Myrene since he is so in love with her, and the only way he knew to restrain himself was to walk away. So props for attempting some form of ancient consent. Uh, Nemon is wheeled on along with his children. Uh, he says that he's in a bad way and asks Gorgias to go and fetch his mother, Nemon's wife. Nemon starts talking, but there's a break in the text, so it's hard to tell exactly what happens. Um, at some point during the break, Gorgias and his mother enter. Nemon admits that maybe he's been too harsh on mankind. Um, he finally adopts Gorgias officially and makes him his heir. Uh, and... Gorgias agrees to this new relationship, but only if they can find a husband for Myrene, and quick, and he has someone in mind. Um, There's another break of about five lines, so exactly how the conversation ends, who knows. But Naaman does ask to be rolled back inside, and he, Myrene, and his wife exit into the house. Gorgias tells Sostratos to go and ask his own father about the marriage. Sostratos says he doesn't have to because his father is here. Uh, Callipides enters grumbling about being hungry. He exits into the shrine to partake of the food left over from the banquet. Um, Sostratos follows. Gorgias exits into Nemon's house. Sostratos and Callipides enter. Sostratos isn't as happy as you'd expect, um, because although Callipides is cool with Sostratos marrying Myrene, he isn't so keen on Gorgias marrying Sostratos' sister. After singing the praises of Gorgias, Callipides finally relents um, and agrees to the match. Gorgias enters. He'd overheard the conversation, and and he doesn't think that he's worthy um, of of such a match because he's poor, and and it just doesn't feel right for him to to be poor and and, and marry this wealthy girl. Um, but Callipides does a bit of bartering, and Gorgias is ultimately swayed. The play ends with a party and dancing, and of course, Nemon taking to his bed and feeling sorry for himself. 
So what do you think? It is different than what we saw in Aristophanes, isn't it? One of the key hallmarks of new comedy is the use of stock characters. Um, And the characters aren't so much individuals as they are representations of a certain type of person. Um, I want to touch on two of them here in this episode. And as we get into Plautus and Terence, I'll talk more about some of the other stock characters. Um, But for obvious reasons, I want to start with these two. Uh, The play opens with, well, the prologue. But after the prologue, we meet a love-struck young man and a clever slave. And it's interesting because Pan, at least in the translation I'm using, refers to them as friends. And this is a common element. A love-struck young man and his clever slave who is not exactly an equal, but not exactly a subordinate either. It probably isn't accurate to call them friends, but it also isn't a typical slave-master relationship either. Um, The play where most people today are familiar with this type of relationship would be A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which has actually a compilation of several plays by Plautus. I highly recommend, once we finish Roman comedy, once we finish the plays of Plautus, that, that you watch it because you will you will see plays that that we've read within and within forum um but so yes that i will likely make lots of references to it when we start roman comedy but again we haven't gotten to plot us yet um and it also means that that yeah when i took ancient comedy and satire in undergrad we totally watched at least part of funny thing happened on the way to the forum um, there is a movie version of it. I recommend the stage version if you can find one to watch. Um, the stage version is better, but the movie isn't a bad substitute. I mean, it has Buster Keaton still doing his old stunts at the age of 70. Um, Zero Mustel reprising his original Broadway performance. I mean, you know, it's not it's, it's not bad, but it, there are some significant changes when they translate it to the screen. Anyway, I need to stop babbling about that because this episode's going on long enough. Um, So if you're familiar with Forum, you've already seen the clever slave, young, love-struck young man dynamic in the characters of Pseudolus and Hero. And yes, Hero has the ability to grant Pseudolus his freedom, so the relationship is not equal. But you should recall that Pseudolus is in many ways superior to Hero. He's smarter. He's more aware of the world. He's not as flighty. This is what we we see um, in this play as well, that we've got Sestratos, who's this love-strunk young man, and Kyrius, who really has has a clue of what's going on in the world, right? Um, but this Again, I said I'd come back to it. This brings us to the issue of slavery. And yes, there was slavery in the ancient world. And yes, owning people is not a good thing in any context. Um, But I want to again stress that slavery in the ancient Mediterranean world was not the same as the chattel slavery we are familiar with in the U.S. It had no basis in race. Slaves could be black, white, or any shade of brown in between. And And more importantly, it was not necessarily a lifelong state. Slaves could earn their freedom and did so on a regular basis. Um, People who owed debts 
could choose to pay them by becoming slaves. Um, there, there was therefore no belief that those who were enslaved were some form of subhuman, and and that's what happened with the race-based slavery. That then we got this racial dichotomy of oh, because you look like this, therefore you are not. Uh, as human as the rest of us and therefore you can be enslaved it wasn't it was it didn't have that dynamic so so yes slavery in the ancient world was still one person owning another person which is never again slavery as a rule is a bad thing but if you are going to compare forms of slavery the form seen in the ancient world is the lesser of two evils it there's no such thing as benign slavery, but it was not, it, you know, it, it was a stage one cancer as opposed to a stage four cancer. Um, not, it was nearly not, it was not as malignant as, as what we saw today. Um, obviously, there's a lot more to talk about than slavery in the ancient world. Um, and this play has a lot more to talk about but again like I said this episode is running long um so things like the role of women I'd love to talk with you about um but we'll we'll save that for the blog um I've put discussion prompts there on some of those other other topics that we might want to hit on the link as always is in the show notes on Wednesday we will read book 19 of the Iliad and I'll talk to you then You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.